forgot to say earlier, if you're visiting with us and you're willing to fill out the card that's in the pew in front of you, just uh, uh, connecting with our church, even if there's something we can pray with you about, we'd love for you to do that. And uh, promise not to spam you or anything like that. Just want to be able to minister to you spiritually. If you are not in Genesis 22 yet, go ahead and turn there if you would, please. When I was uh, looking through this passage, I kept struggling with this question, which was, what in the world does the death of Sarah have to do with uh, Isaac having Rebekah as a wife? And it just seemed like that passage is just sort of stuck there next to it. And so I was debating, do we just look at the, the question of the death of Sarah? Do we look at uh, Isaac finding a wife and sort of skip over chapter 23 and see if anybody notices? Uh, I'm sure you all never, never have that, never have that temptation when you're reading through the Bible. I'm not sure what, why this is here, so let's just go on to the next thing. But uh, the thing that I think was really helpful, just reading and rereading this passage, was noticing in chapter 22, after Abraham has this encounter with God uh, on the mountain in connection with the question of whether he's going to sacrifice his son Isaac. At the end of that chapter, there's those brief verses that we didn't look at last week, and they introduce, I think, for us an important character, not so much all of these other names um, of the children of Abraham's brother Nahor, but particularly in verse 23, Bethuel, Nahor's son, becomes the father of Rebekah. So Rebekah is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, and that will become important at the end of our story. And then at the, the last phrase that Paul read for us, says that when Isaac takes Rebekah as his wife, that uh, he is comforted after his mother's death. And we'll learn from a later chapter that this is almost two years after Sarah has died because uh, Sarah has Isaac when she's 89, 90 years old, and she dies when she's 127, and then um, Isaac takes uh, Rebecca's his wife when he's 40. That's what the next chapter tells us. So the, the events of these chapters span a couple of years. So I think that's important to keep in mind as well. So what's the link then between the end of chapter 22, this account of Sarah's death and burial that seems kind of uh, disconnected for us, and then the account of finding a wife for Isaac? They're all linked by the fact that in these things, God has appointed that someone would be born over here in anticipation of her being married to the heir of the promise over here at the end of chapter 24. And now we're going to look at these chapters and see how all these events come together and how they fit together. Chapter 23 says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Uh, we'll learn later that Hebron is in what will be later the territory of Judah. Uh, it's actually a place from which David reigns for a period of time before he becomes king over all of Israel. And so it has an important role later on in the history of Israel. But for right now, uh, it's just this place where Sarah died. Abraham, after the death of his wife, says, I need to find a burial plot for my wife. Verse 3, he rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I'm a stranger and sojourn among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. 
None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. Notice how the people of the land address Abraham. You are a mighty prince among us. Why would they have this attitude toward him? Because of the way that God had dealt with him in previous chapters, chapter 21 in the covenant with Abimelech, and even before that in chapter 20, where he had deceived Abimelech, God had sort of struck the, the ruler of the land and all of these people, and they, they saw God's power and God's blessing of Abraham, even though Abraham wasn't always faithful to what God called him to do. God was watching out for Abraham. God was keeping his promises to Abraham. And so they have this fear, this reverence of Abraham. That will become important later in, in a moment, so we'll talk about that shortly. Abraham rose, verse 7, and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. He spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephraim, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. And so Abraham makes this additional request. And so we could break this down into uh, one, uh, two requests or three requests. Uh, there end up being three times where he speaks to the sons of Heth. And he repeats this idea, I need a burial site. And he, he sort of driving toward this point of, are, are you going to give it to me? And how much is it going to cost? And those sorts of things. Ephron, verse 10, was sitting among them and said, No, my Lord, I give you the field and the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. And so we have this, I think, sort of a typical plot development from your perspective. There's this question, where is he going to bury Sarah? There's these repeated requests that sort of build this tension, and then it comes to the point, and the uh, Hittite Ephron names his price, and he says, and bury your dead, and Abraham accepts the price. We see that in the next verse, and things sort of go down from there. And I think that the climax of this chapter, chapter 23, is helpful for us in sort of establishing what is the point of what's going on here. So at first glance, we look at this chapter and we say, well, what's the point? Why is it a big deal that his wife has died and he needs to bury his dead? And this sort of negotiation with the Canaanites, why is this here? The point that I think it highlights for us is this. How has Abraham dealt with the Canaanites up to this point? Somewhat uneven, unevenly, not in a very trustworthy manner. And now he comes to this point, and we sort of see the theme from Genesis 14 where he says, I'm not going to be enriched by the Canaanites. Remember, he delivers Lot, and there's all this spoil from the battle. And they say, here, take whatever you want. And he says, no, whatever God provides for me, I'll take that. But I'm not going to take something for you for, from you for free to enrich myself. There's somewhat of that attitude here. And there's also the attitude of they are regarding Abraham, I think, with a measure of fear, a measure of respect. There's a potentially him being in a position of power related to them because they have seen his God to be powerful. And there's perhaps an opportunity for Abraham to be tempted to exploit that power and to say, you just give it to me. Um, and there's some dispute about the price that is named in verse 16. Was it a lot of money? Was it a small amount of money? 
Certainly it was something that Abraham was capable of paying, right? Uh, because God had made him wealthy. We're going to see in the next chapter, God had blessed him and enriched him in every way. And so whether or not the price was a large amount, whether or not it was a sacrificial amount is not really the point. The point is, Abraham is demonstrating loyalty to the covenant he has made with Abimelech, which is to treat the people around him well. He is demonstrating honesty in dealing with the negotiation for the purchase of the burial site. And then this chapter wraps up. Abraham buys the field. He buries Sarah there. Now it belongs to him. Why was this important, this idea of loyalty to the covenant that he's made with Abimelech? And then secondly, this idea of honesty in his dealings with the people? I think we'll see that as we come into the next chapter. This is the one that we're probably far more familiar with, but let's uh, just I'll, I'll read through uh, especially some of the key sections for you. Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Chapter 24 and verse 1. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Place your hand under my thigh, I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land, should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. It's not a dispute about what's meant by the nature of the swearing of this oath. The simple point would be, it's a solemn oath. He's swearing it to his master. He's committing himself to do it. And the main point of it is, God had taken Abraham from Canaan, not from Canaan, from where he had lived in the region of Mesopotamia, to Canaan. But he didn't want him to go back there. But there's this tension because uh, Abraham also doesn't want a son, a, a, a wife for his son, from among the Canaanites, largely because they're idol worshipers, they're not following God, those sorts of things. Instead, he wants a wife for his son from among his relatives. And so though he's not going to go back, and he's not going to send Isaac back, because they're not supposed to be there, he is going to send his servant back to find a wife and bring her over here. There's anticipation in this of some of the themes of God uh, setting off the people of Israel, having them not intermarry with the nations around them, not in some sort of an ethnic purity kind of a sense. People have misrepresented it that way. The point of the not marrying the nations around you was you're supposed to worship God. This nation right here next to you is a pagan people that doesn't worship God. If you marry with them, you're not going to honor God. You're going to be led away into idolatry. So he sends the servant back, makes him swear, go find a wife. If she won't come back, you're free from your oath, but, but do this task that I have set for you. Then the servant took ten camels, verse 10, from the camels of his master, and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And as we left them in Genesis chapter 11, they had settled in a city called Haran, remember? And so he's sending them back there to 
find a wife for his son Isaac. The servant makes the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Note that word loving kindness. The word loving kindness there is the idea of loyalty to a covenant that we see all throughout the Old Testament of God toward his people. And so the servant is saying, God, keep your promises, keep your loyalty to your servant Abraham in answering my prayer. We'll see that idea come up again later in the chapter. Behold, I'm standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, Please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know you have shown loving kindness to my master. Comment more about that in a moment, about whether this is a right way to sort of figure out what God wants you to do, right? We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Before he had finished speaking, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. So we saw her in Genesis 22:23. Now we're seeing her again in verse 15. And so we have some background on who she is. The servant doesn't know any of this, though, right? So we sort of have an inside look at what's going on, but the servant doesn't know any of this. Verse 16, The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had had relations with her, and she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. That detail is important because there's the question of the purity of the line of uh, the offspring of Isaac. Would if, if he takes Rebekah as his wife, will her children be his children? That's basically the question that verse 16 is dealing with. Verse 17, then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord, and she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him one, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. Sometimes at this point, people will start making this extended idea about this was really an industrious woman. Not only did she... Uh, give him a drink, but she drew all this water for camels, and camels are thirsty, they've just come through the desert, and this would have been a lot of work. The point is not on her character. The point is on God's fulfillment and answering of the servant's prayer. Okay, So I just want to make sure that we don't get distracted by that point. I mean, obviously, it is hard work to draw water for camels and all those sorts of things. I'm not discounting that, but the point is, God is answering the servant's prayer. The emphasis is not on the character of Rebecca right now. Verse 21, Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. And so we're building toward another point of, of, of tension and climax in the story, but the question is, is this that point? And I think essentially what we have is we have sort of a little bump in the action right here as we go up toward the main point of the story, and we're going to see the same thing on the other side. We're going to have a little another tension on the other side coming back down. So... Let's uh, keep looking at the story and, and see those points here. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel, two bracelets for a wrist weighing ten shekels in gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord, 
He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Notice, with regard to the question of, is this a good way to figure out God's will? He didn't immediately say, she watered the camel, she must be the one. What did he do first? He checked to see if she was from the right family that his master Abraham had sent him to find a wife for Isaac from. So, um, I would argue that we don't necessarily need to approach discovering God's will in the same way today because we have a completed Bible. But even so, even if we grant that he was asking God for a sign, he checked out the sign. He didn't just sort of blindly follow it. I think that's an important point for us to note. Notice the response of the servant once he hears, she's from the family that my master has sent me to find. He bows low and worships the Lord. We're going to see the same kind of response later on in the chapter. That's going to be repeated. And we're also going to see, note verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth. Look for that idea of blessing as we keep going through the chapter, and look for that idea of loving kindness and truth. Remember, he said in verse 12, Loving kindness to my master Abraham. Remember back in chapter uh, verse 1 of this chapter, God had blessed Abraham in every way. So we're going to see these themes sort of continuing to go through the chapter. The girl goes home. Verse 29, she has a brother named Laban. Verse 30, when he sees the gifts that the servant has brought and says, uh, here's Rebecca say, verse 30, this is what the man said to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels in the spring, and he said, come in, blessed of the Lord. So we see that idea of blessing again. Why do you stand outside, since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? So the man entered the house, then Laban unloaded the camels, gave straw and feed to them, water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. But when food was set before him, that's the servant to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, speak on. I'm not going to read, for sake of time, verses 34 down through um, verse 48, other than to just say he's recapping this story because Laban and his father Bethuel are not aware of it. And the one difference that's interesting to note is that he uh, doesn't mention this idea before uh, with idea of loving kindness. He doesn't mention that necessarily. I don't know that that's hugely significant, but he is going to mention it at the end of the story. But very similar sort of recap in this middle section of the story to what we've already been told in the first part of the chapter. Here's the important point that he sort of draws to a point of it in verse 48. I bowed low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So now if you're going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or the left. This, I think, is the climax point of the story. It's been building and building and building to this question. God has dealt kindly and truly with Abraham. God has done the same for Abraham's servant in answering his prayer and helping him to find the right person. Now here's the question. Laban are you going to do the same thing? Are you going to show loyalty and truth to 
my master Abraham? Look at their response. Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel replied, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. This at first glance sounds like an evasive answer, right? Can't say it's bad, can't say it's good. What are they actually saying? They're saying, like we will see later on in the book of Genesis, where the same phrase is repeated again, this is God's will. Who are we to argue with it? There's a little bit of question if they're saying that 100% genuinely. We'll see why in just a moment. And it's also interesting to note that Laban, um, Rebecca's brother, not her father, is the one working out the details of this circumstance. Could be because Bethuel had grown old. Could be because Laban is a key character later in the book of Genesis, so he's being emphasized here. Regardless, their answer is, this appears to be God's will, so yes. Look at the response of Abraham's servant. Same response to when he heard that he had found the right household. Verse 52, when he heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. So there's this response that we try to pick up in our songs this morning of worshiping the Lord in response to his working in the lives of his people. Okay? Then we come to verse 53. He brings out articles of silver and of gold and garments and gives them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Why, again, her father is not mentioned. Her brother maybe was acting as his representative. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and mother said, Let the girl stay with us some days, a few days, say ten. Afterwards, she may go. So remember how I said there's sort of this initial conflict. Did he find the right person? And then the climax, will she go? And now we have another little conflict at this point, which is, are they really going to let her go? Look at verse 56. He says to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. So people have said, well, maybe in their culture it would have been customary for the bride-to-be to have a few days to spend with her family before she went what are the things that are going on in the servant's mind? Abraham said, do this, get back here. He's on a long journey. Like I said earlier, this is a course of two years, maybe a little bit more, that all of these events are taking place through. So he's going all the way from the land of Israel, from your perspective, here's Israel, all the way over to where the Tigris and Euphrates are, somewhere in that region potentially. And he's got a long journey to go and to come back. And so now that he sees that God has answered the request, he doesn't want to waste any time. So then they say, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Verse 58, they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. There's echoes in this of Abraham's willingness to go from his family, Genesis 12, to the place that God had appointed for him. Not being familiar with it, not really knowing anything about it. I mean, think about this from Rebecca's perspective. This is a big, dramatic transformation in her life that she's going from everything she knows probably never going to see her family again to, to uh, marry this man. Verse 59, They sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. We see this theme of blessing again, right? God blessed Abraham. And then um, in the, the middle part of the chapter... The servant says, Blessed be the Lord. Laban greets the servant with the one blessed by the Lord. And now that same idea of blessing is being brought to 
Rebekah. Verse 61, Rebekah rose with her maids, they mounted the camels and followed the man, so the servant took Rebekah and departed. And we read verses 62 through 67, so I'm not going to reread them for you. Uh, a couple interesting things to note about the conclusion to the chapter. The servant speaks of Isaac as his master instead of Abraham. Abraham sort of passes off the scene. He's briefly mentioned in chapter 25 in connection with his final actions and his death, but the transition is being made from Abraham to Isaac. And so that's important for us to note. It's also important to note that Isaac's character seems to be godly from the perspective of it says, verse 63, he went out to meditate in the field toward evening in the next uh, chap, not chap, the next chapter, yeah, chapter 25, he's going to say when there's this issue of his wife not being able to have children, instead of coming up with his own schemes, he's going to turn to the Lord immediately. And so there's a, I think there's a sense in which Ab, uh, Isaac has absorbed the good character of Abraham with regard to faith in God. I think there's hints of that even here at the end of the chapter. And then as I already pointed out, Isaac marries Rebekah, is comforted with his mother's death, and that's sort of the thing that ties this whole large section together. What then does that have to do with us? Or more importantly, first of all, what does that have to do with the book of Genesis overall? Well, if we think about the book of Genesis, this idea of blessing comes up a number of times in the book. God made the man and the woman. God blessed them. Right? Um, God continues this theme of blessing of various people, including Noah and others, as we go through the book. Clearly, God blesses Abraham in chapter 12 and repeats that idea of blessing. And so there's at least one person who summed up sort of the theme of Genesis as being this idea of creation and blessing, because those are two of the really major themes in connection with the book. But that's not necessarily the main point of this chapter, these couple of chapters. That's probably more like a big theme in the book of Genesis that this chapter is tying into. What's the main emphasis in these two chapters? I think the main emphasis in these two chapters is the idea of covenant loyalty or, or kindness and truth. Okay? We see this in Abraham's dealings with the Canaanites in the purchase of the plot to bury Sarah in. We see this as basically the servant saying, are you going to act this way? And then obviously we see in the context of all of this and the way that God responds to the servant's prayer that God is the one ultimately who's acting this way. What would happen if Abraham had not behaved with loyalty and honesty, with covenant faithfulness and truth with regard to the Canaanites? Would that have helped his testimony before them or hurt his testimony before them as far as the reputation of God and what God's people are like? It would have hurt it had he been unfaithful in this instance. Same thing with uh, Laban. Laban could have said, I'm giving up my sister. This is going to cost me something. I don't want to give her up. And so I'm not going to show loyalty to this representative of my family. I'm not going to be honest with them. And we'll, we'll see from Laban's character later that he's not a particularly loyal or honest person. This, this little bit about let her stay for 10 days and then you can go, you're going to see that again in Laban's dealings with Jacob, right? But for right now, 
He does, perhaps due to the influence of his father, perhaps because of the willingness of his sister, he does show covenant loyalty and truth. What does Laban exercising covenant loyalty and truth, what opportunities does that then create? Isaac can be comforted. There can be an heir to follow after Isaac and Abraham in the fulfillment of God's promises. God continues to bless his people. This idea of the she'll be the, the mother of thousands and ten thousands, all of those sorts of ideas. What then does that have to do with us today? If we see this example here, I think we could argue that you and I ought to show loyal love and truth to those around us, even when it costs us. And what's the ultimate reason for us? God has done it for us, particularly in the person of Christ. God has shown faithfulness to the people that he has purposed to call for himself in the church by giving his son. Um, there's a, a variety of passages that we could look at. We'll look at some more of them tonight. Uh, but the bottom line would just simply be, uh, think of a passage like John 1.14. Is there an equivalent word to this idea of covenant loyalty in the Old Testament that we find in the New Testament? Most people would argue that the equivalent word in the New Testament is the idea of grace. Think what John 1.14 says. Grace and mercy came through Jesus Christ. In Christ, God shows his covenant loyalty and his truth to his people today. What then does that have to do with the way that we live? There are opportunities for us to choose not to be loyal and faithful and true in the way that we deal with people because it's going to cost us potentially in terms of our possessions. Right? That was the issue in chapter 23. If you choose not to be honest in that aspect, does that have down the stream effects on the opportunities that you then have to minister to the people that God has put around you? Yes. And sometimes it may cost us in terms of relationships, as we see in chapter 24. And again, if we choose to be unlike Laban in this example, if we choose to be disloyal or untruthful in the way that we approach people, that is going to have effects on the opportunities that we have for God to use us to minister to other people. So I think the question for us from these two chapters is this. Are we going to be loyal and truthful to the people that God has put around us? There's a little bit of tension here, right? Because we could talk about being loyal and we're like, why do we have to be loyal to people that are not really connected to us? What was the connection between Abraham and the Canaanites? He'd made promises to them, right? And so I think an application for us would be, even if there's people outside of what we might call a family connection, like we see in chapter 24, but there are people that we have made certain commitments to, even if they don't know God, even if in many respects they're not ideal from the perspective of like deserving our loyalty or our trust, keep those commitments. You might work for a boss who's not a believer, 
You might work with people who are not believers. There's a measure of loyalty that needs to be there. There's a measure of honesty that needs to be there. Uh, there's also the family connection in chapter 24, this idea of loyalty to family. And uh, I'm not saying like you have each other's backs kind of thing. I'm saying you follow the examples that we see in this passage, you follow the example of Christ in a sacrificial kind of love toward the people that God has put around you. So, are you loyal? Are you honest? If you are someone who doesn't yet know God, you can't live up to the example of this chapter and certainly not to the example of Christ because you don't have the capacity to do so. And so what you need to hear from this is not, I need to be a better person. What you need to hear from this is, God has shown kindness and truth in Jesus, who is the only way to be rightly related to God. And the starting point for me is turning and following God through Jesus, whom he has provided. So, a story about a burial plot long ago. A story about finding a wife. They seem to be kind of disconnected from our experience, right? But the point of faithfulness to promises and truth in our dealings reflects God's character, reflects the example of the people we see in this story, and provides future opportunities for us to do the work that God has called us to do. Let's pray. Lord, there are many pulls in our world today to be disloyal, unfaithful to promises that we've made. You only have to turn on the news to see that that's true with regard to marriages, that's true with regard to um, honesty in our work and all those other sorts of things that are just really common examples. Um, Lord, help us to see the effects of these things in our opportunities to share the gospel, in our opportunities to encourage one another. Uh, if there are examples of us being unfaithful in these ways, it undermines our effectiveness at encouraging people who are in the same place that Isaac was. They've lost someone that they've loved. We have opportunity to say, here's how God's been faithful to me. But if we're not faithful in the way that we live then there's going to be a, a tendency to, to not benefit from that encouragement, to not benefit from that help. And so there's many different directions that we could take this, Lord, but I just pray that you would help us to see that we ought to reflect the character of Christ in loyalty, in truth, in the way that we interact with people, even when there is a price, even when it is not easy so that you can use us to further your plan, bless other people, carry out the work that you are doing in the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.